Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hi, world. Welcome to the 395th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting across the world, and it's our ninth year. We're back this week, broadcasting from the magical city of Los Angeles in our studio on Hollywood Boulevard, where technology meets entertainment. I just had a great few days up in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Google never ceases to amaze me. You know that Google's AI can now pick up lung cancer and breast cancer earlier than radiologists can. Wow, that's pretty extraordinary. They're doing some amazing medical technology up there. Speaking about medical technology, have you ever thought about whether to get stem cell treatment to fix a dodgy knee or a hip or some other piece of your body that ceased to work properly? If you do, if you have, you're not alone. And lack of FDA regulations has led to medically unproven stem cell therapies becoming a $2 billion business. Now, there's no question that stem cells have tremendous promise to help us understand and treat quite a large range of diseases, injuries, and other health-related conditions. Their potential is evident just in the use of blood stem cells to treat diseases of the blood, a therapy that saved the lives of thousands of children with leukemia, for example. It can also be seen in the use of stem cells for tissue grafts to treat diseases or injury to the bone, skin, and the surface of the eye even. Important clinical trials involving stem cells are underway for many other conditions, and researchers continue to explore new avenues using stem cells in medicine. You know, we know that some stem cell treatments, like bone marrow transplants, are medically legitimate. But if you look at television, listen to the radio, and look at newspapers, There's lots and lots and lots, hundreds of other miracle cures that are simply exploiting sick patients and they're on the rise. The number of clinics in the United States offering unproven stem cell therapies grew from 12 in 2009 to more than 700 last year. It's been proven that in babies, amniotic stem cells develop into a variety of types of tissue. However, it hasn't been proven that in adults, (laughs) amniotic stem cells repair multiple types of tissue. It's not proven. But despite this lack of evidence, birth tissue-based stem cell clinics claim These cells can treat arthritis, wrinkles, hair loss, erectile dysfunction, asthma, Alzheimer's, diabetes, heart failure, and a whole truckload more. And none of that is proven. 
Stem cells' current applications as treatments are often exaggerated by the media and also by these clinics looking to capitalise on the hype by selling treatments to chronically ill or seriously injured patients. R3 Stem Cell, which is a company that distributes stem cells to 30 clinics across the US, was founded by a former orthopaedic surgeon whose medical licence was revoked after 14 malpractice lawsuits. Now he's flogging stem cells. And birth tissue suppliers like R3 obtain their tissue for free from mothers who donate placentas because by law they can't be paid for donating them. So there are some companies, though, who make payments illegally. But in the main, these companies get the um, tissue for free and then they charge patients between $5,000 and $10,000 for a 10-minute therapy session. That's up to $60,000 every hour for something you get for nothing. God. So before you go and get any stem cell treatment, you should discuss it with your primary care physician before deciding to proceed. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've now got about 1.7, 1.8 million daily subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds to subscribe, and every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain. We give you tips on, on various stocks to buy. All sorts of things happen in the newsletter. And today's newsletter is about closing the deal, and I have had a wealth of thank you emails from people right across the globe, you know, from rejection to workplace screw-ups. Everybody's experienced that all-too-familiar gut-wrenching numbness. But the great paradox is that the people who enjoy the most success are those that often endure the greatest failures. The one thing you can trust for the latest up-to-date business information is the Bob Pritchard newsletter. So simply go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and subscribe. After every radio show, we get a bunch of people. Now, evidence is in that the Me Too movement's beginning to hurt women. On Wall Street, men are walking on eggshells around women. Men are adopting new rules and draconian tactics to avoid being in contact with women just in case they get caught up by me too. No more dinners with female colleagues. Don't sit next to female colleagues on flights. Book hotel rooms on different floors. Avoid one-on-one meetings. And some men won't meet with women in windowless rooms or get on elevators alone with them. In fact, hiring a woman these days is an unknown risk. What if I say something to her innocently and she takes it the wrong way? A recent business survey found that 60% of male management are uncomfortable mentoring, socialising one-on-one or participating in common workplace activities with women. 
The Me Too movement has come at the price of mentorship, networking and development opportunities for women. Men in senior management positions are 12 times more reluctant to engage with more junior level women. Now, this is a very serious stumbling block for women working to try and advance their careers. No one has ever gained a promotion without getting a one-on-one meeting. Of course, this behaviour could wind up backfiring because treating women differently in the workplace can end up forming the basis of a discrimination suit. But it's a problem. The the reasons why men are pulling back from women is interesting. 36% of men surveyed said it was because of how it could look to others. Others feel a heightened awareness that their actions could make female colleagues uncomfortable. Men are also concerned that some women fabricate claims. Now, while it is a small percentage overall, around 5 to 6% of all reported assaults, it's still 30,000 false claims a year. So even if the odds are low, many men believe that if you're accused, even wrongly, it can destroy your whole life. John Singer a lawyer who gained attention for his work with men who've been fired for sexual misconduct, says men are either scared to be alone with female colleagues or clients are more skittish about what to say. He confirmed that male and female clients both have told him that women are getting excluded from meetings and social outings. And this makes it harder for women to simply do their jobs, meet with clients or team up on sales calls. So what do we do? Men need to play an active role in supporting female colleagues and giving them space to succeed. For men, it isn't just the right thing to do to mentor and sponsor women. It's actually a good thing to do because whether you're the most senior CEO or the most junior person, if you can work better with over 50% of the population, you've got to be ahead and outperform those who don't. So I guess the short-term solution is to ensure there is another person at a meeting or at lunch or in any other situation where actions or words can be misinterpreted, but still have the meanings. Now, my interview today is a really cool one. It's with a lady who has an OBE. That means that she went and met with a queen who spoke to her and dobbed her on the shoulders or head or whatever they do. So she's spent time with the Queen. She is an amazing lady and she um, has done what she did that was incredible was that she um, converted her design practice into a profit share with her staff. But have a listen to it. Stick around. It's a great interview. This is Bob Pritchard and I'll be back with the fabulous Vanessa Brady in just a moment. Do you 
want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the past eight and a half years or so and some 400 plus interviews, we've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people. We've talked about what they do and the services they provide, um, the challenges that they've faced. And we try to work out, I guess, underneath it all, what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to be successful um, and to be, you know, I remember um, being driven by the fact that it's really hard to be the best at what you do on your block, far less in your city or in your state or in your country and to be the best at what you do worldwide is really extraordinary and I don't care what it is. If you're the best, you've got my vote um, because everybody's got the same opportunities and um, very few people actually get to be enormously successful. So... Dr. Vanessa Brady, who I have on the phone from London, is an international multi-award winning interior designer. She's a business consultant and founder of the Society of British and International Design. I've also been chatting with her for about half an hour, and she's a really, really good lady. She's um, very interesting. We were talking about uh, a good friend of ours, um, Michael Garbett, who was a big um, uh, PR person in the UK that looked after Robin Gibb and that's how um, Vanessa got um, to meet my friend. So, and she's really interesting. She's amassed an extraordinary award-winning portfolio. She's um, designed projects as diverse as the Hard Rock Cafe to the Design Council, High Security Government Offices, His Majesty the Sultan of Brunei, the King of Saudi Arabia, the Head of State Palaces, the private residence of numerous diplomats and VIPs. She's quite a big mucky duck. And in 2014, (laughs) Vanessa was awarded an OBE, which is an officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth for her services to interior design and the UK economy. Now that's that's a pretty good effort. And um, 
we'll find out what happens when you get an OBE. I've only known one in one person who's well. She actually got a a dame hood. Um, Kiri Takanawa, who's a, an opera singer, yeah. and uh, I did a, a tour with Kiri Takanawa. And it, when we finished the tour, she said to me, "If you happen to be in England, um, give me a call and um, pop around." So I went to England, and I went to a house and knocked on a door, and she said, "What the hell are you doing here? You know, <laughs> sort of go away." <laughs> Which was most embarrassing, I must admit. But um, <laughs> despite her hoity-toity clients, Vanessa's actually very down to earth. And if you go and knock unexpectedly at a door, um, I'm I'm sure she'll definitely serve you a cup of tea and a scone. <laughs> you get exactly. A <laughs> Hi, Vanessa. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Hi, Radio I'm Show. Bob. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, when you when you get a um, an OBE, what does that what does that do for you professionally? Does that um, really open up the doors? Yes, it absolutely did. Uh, you know, when I um, uh, well, there was two things about the way I received it, and then what it does when you receive it. Um, so. Uh, once you've got an OBE, I mean, it's sort of an endorsement um, by, by, well, from Queen Elizabeth, and it was recommended by the Prime Minister um, for services to interior design and the UK economy. And therefore, it, it meant that being endorsed by those two um, meant that um, for, certainly for interior design, where it's already questionable whether it's uh, uh, professional or not, and whether it's qualified or certified, because um, it, it's not a, a, a profession like a solicitor or an engineer or a doctor, though that needs to be qualified by a registration board. Mm. So having that um, qualification from uh, uh, the Queen was fantastic to me. It sort of said, nobody can say anything to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, everybody's, <They> do. <laughs> and everybody's nice to you from now on. Yes, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But I, the funny thing was that when I got um, I got this letter that said, you know, you've been recommended by the Prime Minister and you and it came from Whitehall and it says, do not phone this office. And it said, you mustn't tell anyone and we'd like you to go to the um, Buckingham Palace and the date and uh, to receive it and um, with we don't like fascinators. Um, you must wear a hat. And um, <laughs> again, do not discuss it. And I thought, that's not correct. Someone's, someone's sent that to me. So immediately someone's having I you phoned, on. But, yes, exactly. So I immediately phoned the number, <laughs> which they said, do don't not call. Do. And I said, um, yes, I'm just checking. And, I, and it was such a... Whitehall 2642 type of voice on the other end yes. and I knew and, and he said no this, that's correct and I said wow and um, when my daughter came in I told her she said oh mummy <laughs> and then we didn't tell we, we didn't tell anybody and the night night before um, they say don't say anything and you sort of think if you do tell somebody then you won't get it and then all of a sudden um, a friend of mine tweeted my pal Vanessa Brady's got an OBE in the Queen's birthday honours. And so I immediately texted him and said, 
delete it, delete it, you're not allowed to say anything. He said, oh, I've just seen it come up on the, 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 it's just come up on the sky thing. And I said, oh, it's real, it's true. <laughs> so it was lovely. <laughs> that's, that's fabulous. And, and you also won the um, Woman in the City Award in 2013. So I did. Yeah, you're, you're quite an achiever. Well, I that was so surprising because, um, again, the the woman in the city award is it, it's really it's stockbrokers, um, lawyers. There was a, a doctor from from the NHS for one of the main hospitals for cancer, and me as an interior designer. And I thought yeah. I just sat there, and when my name was called out, I absolutely couldn't believe it because you it's wish. not. Yeah. You were I mean, sure somebody with a real job was going to win it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's exactly right. They, they, it's always seen as something for fluffy, um, you know, and, and it's and not really necessary. And um, people tend to think of interior design as being um, something where people spend a lot of money. And I, I explain, no, we're, we're commercial. We help you save money or we help you, in, we help to increase the turnover in your business by getting the table size right and getting an extra table in a restaurant or um, playing the right music and the right seats at the right pitch so people will stay longer in a bar or whatever it is. But that's part of the design. It's not just the ooh, ah, pretty, isn't this sweet? You know, it's um, very much a business um, a projection of how to make something look good um, as well as it's the aesthetic as well as the function and people only think it's the aesthetic so yeah, um, yes true. it was it's it's really uh, nice to be acknowledged and I remember saying you know my my speech I said you know if I'm going to say something controversial it's going to be that the city needs to change its investment because every building every office building might uh, you know and certainly Canary Wharf and all of the the um, city of London yeah. has office buildings with gyms and restaurants and I said there's loads of restaurants and there's loads of gyms in every street but there isn't childcare why don't you build childcare facilities and then all the investment you've spent on the individuals who leave yeah. for maternity leave can come with their child put their child in your building downstairs knowing that that child is safe and everything and you retain your employed great you know people mm. and um I I don't I still don't understand why my um, companies don't do it. But I don't, don't understand it either. There's a big move in in the US to have um, major companies have childcare facilities, but it's for some. I, I, I guess companies don't want to take the um, the risk. I mean, you know, giving an employee a gym, if he happens to drop a weight on his head, it's on him. But if um, something happens to your child while they're in childcare at your office, it probably opens you up to major um, legal ramifications. Yeah, I I understand that, but they could still franchise it out. I mean, the the people that go back to work and that, you know, when I was young, a professional a professional had a wife at home and he went to work and sure. she stayed at home and looked at children. These days, there's very, very few couples that um, can say only one of us needs to work and the other yeah. one will stay at home. Yeah, and true. so, you know, even whether you're a teacher or a solicitor, they're both at work and therefore there must be 
it must be a business opportunity for a, a, a playgroup type of um, business to be able to franchise out a group so that it's not the company that's the, you know, the employer that's providing the service. They, yeah. they, provide, they just provide the space. But those facilities, I still think, is one of the biggest barriers to returning your, um, getting your staff to return. And it's, you spend such a lot of money. You invest so much into the right team. Well, it's a shame to lose it. I guess interior design is a bit subjective, isn't it? I mean, if you're comparing six interior designers, it seems to me that that's reasonably subjective. Where a um, yeah. if you're looking for the best lawyer in town, you, you know, Fred's um, prosecuted 323 cases and he's won 322 of them. He, he's an obvious. He's a winner. Yeah. He's, a, he's a winner, but. It, is that yes no you're right I mean the thing is that interior design um, people tend to think of it as one job but you might have a, a designer that's a specialist in healthcare or a designer that specializes in space design so it's mm. how to reconfigure the interior or um, industrial design so there's so many um, headings and we we've categorized it into 10 different specialisms and therein you can define the type of designer that you want and people I, I don't think the public have um, got that in their mind's eye I think they still see an interior designer as an expense you know Isn't and that- one per- type of person isn't that poor marketing by whoever the yep. controlling body or whatever it is is? Well, association. It, you're absolutely right. But um, the the first thing that I've tried to define is the title, and that's difficult because first of all, anyone can call themselves a designer. Um, it's not a protected title, and uh, in America, um, unusually in the um, 52 states. It's a protected title in four states: I, um, oh. Louisiana, Florida, Nevada, and Washington. Um, those are the four states. So I understand it in Florida, but in I mean New York, you'd think it would be um, uh, licensed. It's not um, because each for us each state is almost like a separate country. It is, um, yes. but. In um, in the rest of Europe and the rest of the world, it's it's licensed. It's protected in Germany, Norway, I think, and um, Canada, mm. and that's uh, and that's it. So if the dog wants to describe itself as a designer, interior designer, it can. I open up a website, and here's the problem. Everyone says, you know, look at my fabulous images. How does the consumer know that With, those images yeah. were made by that person and that they have the capability, the experience? And that's one of the things that I've campaigned with government for, yeah. to say it's not fair, um, especially if it's a residential designer. They're taking the consumer's funds and the consumer has got faith um, with a, almost with a stranger with what is, in most cases, people's largest asset, their home. Hmm. So I think they should be protected. And yep, the next thing that we've got as a problem is that um, the name describes different things in different countries. So, for example, in Europe, um, what we call, um, what they call an interior designer the UK calls an interior decorator. Right. And what what 
they call an interior architect what we call an interior designer. But the UK is not allowed to use the word architect because it's a protected title. So when we're talking and saying, oh, we're interior designers, they're, they're assuming we're decorators. And yes. therefore, the, the mind's eye is across two different things. And unless you can differentiate the skill and say, forget what you're called, what's your, what is your qualification? That's where we have an issue. So um, I think the closest it's uh, got to being any type of regulation is the National Council of Interior Design Qualification, the NCIDQ. And Canada, USA and I got together with um, NCIDQ to change the regulation and make it a global regulation, calling it the CIDQ. And we've spent a couple of years in workshops trying to get it together and um, it's just such a big hairy monster it's just so difficult and I said I think we actually have to bring it down into bite-sized pieces and first of all describe and define it um, because there's such a such an appetite for it you know and um, everyone thinks everyone's a hobbyist thinks that they're an interior designer so it's um, it's a difficult thing and that's what I'm working with government to try and achieve at the moment Let's see how far I get. Yeah, okay. I, I'm still I'm still getting over the fact that they send you a letter. Uh, the Queen <laughs> sends you a, or somebody sends you a letter, uh, unsolicited, um, and says, you know, you're going to get an OBE. Uh, I would have expected that at least the Queen could give you a call from a Rolls Royce on the on the on a cell phone or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, the Bentley rather than yeah, a Rolls from Royce. The Bentley, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the, yeah, I would have thought that you know it's it's quite important and there's very you know relatively few people that have them. So I would have thought it would have been you know and of course, well, you I- get to speak when you get to the palace. So when you when you arrive, there's people from all different walks of life, you know, uh, have achieved things or done something or being recognised. And um, uh, I don't quite know the system. I, do. I presume it's alphabetical because I'm my surname being B. And so I think I was about tenth or twelfth to go in, and there was quite a few people um, through that that day. And they start off with the highest for recognised within service, and then yeah. military and whatever. And so I think I was third or fourth when it came to the commoners, if you like. And um, we, it was explained that, well, you. You bow and you move forward and then you will engage in conversation. And when the hand comes out to shake hands, then that's a sign that you stop talking and you back up and you um, bow again and walk away. So I got then and it's like, well, it was wonderful. What you've achieved is marvellous and I'm sure it wasn't easy with interior design. You've done such a wonderful thing with it. And I said, oh, you have no idea. And out came the hand. I said, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, that's what makes you human. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, gee. Um I had a look, and from what I can find out, there are 232,000 interior designers in the UK. Yeah, well, that's what they say. 232,000. But it's it's not interiors. It's it's everything. That's fashion, graphic, um, landscape. That's every type of design. Okay, but you got the OBE. So what the hell is it about you? 
and the way that you conduct your business that allows you to stand out as one among 232,000 others. That's an extraordinary achievement. Well, um, I was... You don't have to be modest. I feel a bit um, humble at that, but I was... um, First of all, interior design hadn't been recognized, and I've been screaming from the rooftops for years that... It's no longer a, a, a growth, you know, it is a growth industry, but it's no longer a new entry and it has to be formalized and, you know, it, it needs some regulation. And the government kept saying, well, we're trying to remove regulation. And I said, but I'm not talking about implying, enforcing regulation for the sake of it. I'm talking about protection regulation. I'm looking at it from the side of the consumer. You know, they they there's complaints if things go wrong or, and no one's ever going to come and say, oh, I've, been, I've had a complaint made against me or this has gone mm-hmm. wrong. So we, we as a body, as a, an industry, need to come to you and say, help us, let's work together to regulate it to protect the consumer. And that, for me, is something that I've um, been aiming to do for uh, the last 10 or 12 years. And, um, and I took it to, I took that, idea to Europe, to Brussels, where there's a a council for interior design and the European Council had, um, I think it's 27 countries in Europe and they had 16 member countries. So from those 16 members, the UK wasn't there. And when I went to see them, I said, why why aren't we there? And they said, well, you don't have the standards that the rest of Europe have. And I said, well, tell me what we need to do and I'll set them. So they said, you need to do this, this and this. So I came back and set them. And then I went back to their AGM and said, right, we now have a code of conduct. We have a standard. We say that, uh, you know, you have to continue with education and each year you have to continue with training. You know, it's not good enough to simply just graduate in the 50s with a degree and then never ever go and learn about anything that's um, coming into the industry thereafter. So we set that and um, we set um, two years of um, training, work experience, if you like, as a minimum, and then accredited thereafter. And that sort of set for the very first time in the UK a standard and then we encouraged lot there's lots of other little organizations and um, different things I was the designer for the design council um, and they represent design across everything so fashion and everything and so I sort of had their ear because I did their offices and um, then I was able to go and work with um, the government departments and then I worked in um, house you know the in the government is based into two um, houses, if you like. Yep. There's the House of Commons and yep. the House of Lords. Sure. So the House of Commons is where you lobby and the House of Lords uh, lobby to change the law or create law and the House of Lords listen to that and then convert it into law. So I went to work, I went to um, give talks and discuss and lobby in the House of Lords rather than the House of Commons. I thought, I'll never get there. And um, so I sat at uh, Senate meetings and said, well, I represent, well, I remember being at the first um, business breakfast that I was invited to, and there were 19 people in the room, of which I was one of two women. So from the 17 men, the um, the MP that was the guest speaker asked a question and uh, about IP, and where there was a, a lot of 
sneering and smirking from the men. Uh, that was me and this other lady. That's I, what men um, do. I, they do when they're in groups. <laughs> they get them on their own and they back up. <laughs> so I learned very quickly that, well, rather than for them to think of me as a blonde, you know, um, dumb interior designer in heels, I started to drop all the statistics and all the sales and the value of what we create and generate and how that it adds to the overall market and and then I said well I've just created an event for to promote um, interior design and I'll tell you the names of the people that entered who wanted our award and I said Bentley and they came over from from Germany and I saw eyebrows raising and looking at each other and at the end of the meeting the uh, head of the um, business meeting said we'd like you to join our business lobby group and I said consider it done I'd love to <laughs> and um, I spent two or three years with them and they helped me immensely and uh, I, I would say who do I need to speak to to get this done say oh you need Lord so and so for that and off I trot and uh, and it was it was much easier I thought well if they see me I'll do a Marilyn Monroe if they see me as a dumb blonde interior designer I'll do that to get the attention and then I'll kill them with the stats. And <laughs> I used to, and that's what I did. So it was, um, they weren't expecting me to be business-like. Yeah. And now I don't have to do that. I think um, as the years have changed, now they expect me to be business-like and they would be shocked if I wasn't. Sure. But, um, I, and I think that's the same across the world. I mean, that you don't have to fight for space anymore. In fact, I was at a, a meeting last week and a man on the board, I was in the audience, and a man on the board made a comment to me to a question I'd asked that was very derogatory, and he lost his entire audience. The entire room went, ooh, you know, and yeah. he knew he'd made a mistake. And the next day, I got so many emails saying, oh, you were so gracious. And I said, well, it's like one of those moments when someone behaves badly with that old school, yep. you know, old style, derogatory, you know, chauvinistic way. You can respond with a smart Alec response to say, you know, is your mother proud of you, you know, and yeah. or something <laughs> like that. But actually, sometimes it's better to leave it in the air, as I did that time, and actually he didn't recover and people that were on his side at the beginning of the debate he lost and at the end of you know the evening everyone in that room came over to me and gave me their card and I thought you just sent you just sent everyone my way <laughs> it's not not clever to be uh, uh, no. smart aleck anymore the, these so. days it's not um mm. so tell me about the real Vanessa Brady. Um, what was your background? Did you are you an ordinary person? Or did you grow up in a castle with butlers and waiters? <laughs> no, very ordinary. Um, <laughs> I come from Bournemouth, which is sort of like I South know it France well. I've spent a lot of time there. I've got very, very, very good friends in Bournemouth who I'm sure really? you know. Oh, that's amazing because it's such a small town. Well, that's my hometown, so. Um, I I was very lucky. I wanted in those days. I I'm the middle daughter, and my father was an engineer, and I always wanted to be in design. Um, but in those days, you only got that job if you were the daughter of somebody who was right. lord right. or lady, you know. And also, you only got commissions from those types of properties because generally, certainly, business didn't spend money on design, and 
people didn't buy in those days. They didn't even buy that. We didn't have IKEA or anything. That was a, you had furniture handed down and you made do, and that was it. So there wasn't design really for the people. It was only for the elite. And so I, I thought, well, that's something that I'd like to do, but I'll go into fashion. Um, and I, I learned very quickly that I couldn't be in fashion because it was just um, too personal, too catty. And I thought, no, do I, do I really want to live my life, uh, you know, for the next 30 years or whatever um, with listening to all that nastiness and backbiting? And I thought, no, that's not for me. So I went to speak to my tutor and they said, well, what made you think that design would be you know, great for you. And I said, well, I like fashion. I like fabric. I like texture. And they said, well, what about interiors? And what about um, uh, uh, um, product design and things like that? So we did a, they had a floating course. So for literally six weeks, I floated between different courses to see what I liked. And I liked construction. And I remember walking, when I was walking up to um, my study, I was walking down a high street, Old Christchurch Road, and they were painting the buildings. And I thought, that's a great color. I like that. And I was talking to the builder and watching this outside of the building being painted over the next couple of weeks. And I thought, actually, the color next to it would be terrible if they do the wrong color. So I went and started to chat about that. And then I thought, actually, interior design, I like it because... I like the down-to-earth, roll-your-sleeves-up construction side of it. And and builders didn't have designers in those days. So that was fantastic for me. I would get to know a couple of builders, and they would say, Vanessa, come in. What do you think? Where should we put, you know, um, cupboards? And I said, why did you put that cupboard there? And they'd say, well, because there's a baton behind the wall there. And I said, well, why didn't you put it up against the corner? Because the baton's not there. And I'd say, well, when you built the wall, you should have put a baton there as well. And then instead of them being smart to me, I was being smart back to them. And then they got to come and ask me, um, what do you think about this space? And what do you think about that? And then I was also very fortunate that in Bournemouth in the 80s, well, it was the late 70s at that time, the um, uh, it was mainly old age people's homes, huge houses, and they were made into old people's homes. Mm -hmm. And in the late 70s, 80s, because they were converted to language schools. So all of the, suddenly Bournemouth became a European young person's um, sort of playground. And um, two very, very wealthy men um, said to me, look, we're going to open, one of them owned a hotel in London and said, we're going to open an office to buy property and we'd like someone to come and work with us. And we we haven't got enough money um, for more than six months, but if we can make it pay, then we'll stay. We'd like you to come with us. So I said, okay, but I need a contract and I need 30%. So one of them went berserk and said, what do you mean 30%? We, we haven't asked you to put any money. We just want you to come and work. And the officer, I said, yes, but you haven't got a business yet. Yeah. And you've said you've only got enough to last six months. So I've actually going to be the one that makes it. I'm going to be the one in the office every day. And I'm going to be the one that's going to make it or break it. So you've got 100% of nothing. And... I want asking you for 30% of something when I, if I make it, if it doesn't make it, then what do you've got to lose? So the one with the money nodded and said, give it to her. So I said, okay, but I'll also need a flat. (laughs) 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 I need somewhere to live. So they gave me a studio 
in the basement of a um, in, of Draycott uh, in a uh, building that they were managing in um, Draycott Avenue, which was somewhere called Chelsea, which I didn't know about. And yeah. I ended up in a fantastic tiny little studio, but in really in the heart of London. So I was so lucky. I didn't know what any of that was. And I walked out, I was on King's Road and um, yeah. and I did hit the jackpot in that. And I stayed and worked, we worked together for about three years. And then um, they, 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 well, one was living overseas and the other one, um, his wife and children lived in Bournemouth. So he used to drive up and down during the week and then they moved to Windsor and um, that was it. And we still, we're still all in touch. And um, and that's 30 years later, 30 odd years later. So uh, I went out on my own and they went and built built um, shopping malls and um, they introduced me to, you know, very, very wealthy um, people that were, in, you know, coming over to the UK and buying property and buying in Leatherhead and um, uh, Windsor and everything. And I was doing these properties and people were buying flats and letting them and everything. So um, that got me on my way. And then when I started on my own, um, I I just got introduced. It was word of mouth. And then here I am, I, you know, years later, I, I realized that it was much harder to do it um, alone without my own construction company because I couldn't get workmen to turn up on time and if one was late that messed up the other one oh I can't work now I'm busy over there so um, from doing the design I set up my own construction company and then for at least 15 years I had um, quite a big you know my own company and we did our own I did all the fit out completely and that meant that I could always yeah, manage control, the yeah. complete yes and it, we did a whole turnkey it was fantastic because um, in those days I did the design the fit out the installation the reveal it was it was all um, uh, turnkey fantastic and now I only do the design. I do the the drawings, the uh, and and I specify the materials. I actually don't get involved in the construction at all. Just getting off that and going back to Bournemouth for a minute. Um, mm. Do you know Shooter Healthcare? Do I know who? Shooter Healthcare. Edwin Besant. No. Edwin Besant and Annette Brayo. Do you you don't know them? They're, no. they're both from Bournemouth and um, very close friends of mine. Great international well, I'm going company. To make, I'm going to make the effort. When we get off the phone, I'm going to make the effort. Because I'm actually doing a penthouse down there um, at the moment and uh, I shall be there in a week. So I will uh, try to hook them out and say we've been on the phone for a while. I'll, <laughs> I'll, send, you, I'll, send, you their, I'll send you their details. And you, you, mentioned, yeah. you mentioned Leatherhead and that's where Curie de Kanawa lives. <laughs> Oh, really? Well, (laughs) how amazing. Because she used to live just off of Connaught Street years ago when I lived uh, in Bayswater, which is both there in Bayswater. So I knew where she lived, but I've never met her. And I know... Um, but I do know her godsons, actually. Oh, okay. (laughs) Life is so small, isn't it? It it? is small. small. (laughs) Now, we're we're running short of time, but... Yes. You converted your design practice into a profit share with your staff. And I, um, more companies should be encouraged to do that because, you know, the, the gap between the 1% and the 99% is just, but, but it's a whole big thing. But um, 
What's been the effect on staff morale and productivity and quality of work of making that change? Well, I always think that if you keep everything for yourself, you can be the the biggest small business. You know, you will yep. be the corner shop man. But if you give a little bit to everyone around you, you can delegate and go on and start the next thing and the next thing. So I made my business a profit share. And in doing that, everyone has an investment and an interest over and above. Ultimately, I'm responsible if things go wrong sure. and they still say, you know, boss, boss, how do we do this? But it's, it's part of us and we're all together. And I actually said, you know, I don't want any of you to come to work and I don't want to come to work and think, oh, God, so, you know, him today or her today. And I don't want to feel like that. You know, we spend a third of our lives with each other. A third asleep, and a third we should be out there enjoying what we've we've done. So actually, we need to all make sure that we all carry each other. And so, what I did was um, I divided the way I worked as well. I would say, how long do you think it will take to, for example, decorate this space? And they would say, oh, that's four days. And I'd say, okay, we will. Um, calculate four days for that, ten days for this, and then I'd add up and say, right, this project is going to be. You've told me it's 30 days work. I've quoted and I've got within my um, uh, dis- discipline, within the project, I've got some, um, uh, what do you call it when things go wrong? Um, um, I've forgotten the word for a moment, but anyway. Um, uh, the Contingency. contingency, that's the word, contingency. <laughs> so I'd say, look, you know, um, normally a, a business puts 15% contingency on and I would undercut that and say, we're going to have 10% contingency. So what I'll do is I will give you my contingency sum as a bonus if you come in. That means that I don't have to look over my shoulder all the time and you get that as bonus. And it meant that they all checked each other so that someone said, yeah. no, don't leave it like that. That was it. And I'd say, you know, if something's wrong, you've got to fix it at your own pace, at your own time. But it meant that they worked to make sure that everything was super fantastic. And at the end of the project, they would earn, like at the very beginning in the old days, they would say, wow, you know, we've, um, we've bought a camera or oh, we've, we've bought a flight. Yeah. Um, uh, and it was great. And then as you years passed, passed, you know, one bought a plot, a plot of land and extra cars and things. So it was fantastic that the incentive meant that everyone shared in the profit. Yeah, that's great. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time. Um but it's been great to talk to you, Vanessa. I really appreciate it. And it's obvious oh, it's nice it's obvious you. why you're successful. Firstly, you're a very nice person, but you are obviously a very hardworking, very astute businesswoman. And, and that's what makes success, isn't it? You, yeah, one way to, yeah. to be successful, you need to be astute, you need to be honest, and you need to work your butt off. And I don't care what you do, you'll make it. I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. There's, you know, there, there's that saying, isn't it? It's funny, but the harder I work, the more successful I become, but the luckier yeah. I get, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you'd like to contact Vanessa, go to vanessa-brady.com. It's a very impressive website. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business after this short break.
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network. And we're broadcasting day across the world from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. As a child in New Jersey, young Richard Jarecki played rummy, scat and bridge and continually won money from his friends. Richard had a brilliant mind and went on to study medicine. In the 1950s, Jarecki gained a reputation as one of the world's foremost medical researchers, but his true passion lay in the casino. In 1960, he developed an obsession with roulette, a game that's considered to be a game of chance. But Jarecki was convinced that he could beat the system. He noticed that at the end of each night, casinos would replace the cards and the dice with fresh sets. But the expensive roulette wheels went untouched and often stayed in service for decades. Before they were replaced, like any other machine, these wheels acquire wear and tear. So Jarecki suspected that tiny defects such as chips, dents, scratches and unlevel surfaces might cause certain wheels to land on specific numbers more frequently than randomly prescribed. Dr. Jarecki commuted between the operating table and the roulette table, manually recording thousands upon thousands of spins and analysing the data for statistical abnormalities. He experimented until he had a rough idea of a system based on previous winning numbers. He wanted to perfect the system based on to beat the wheel. After months of collecting data, he scraped together $100, and despite having never gambled in his life before, he went to the casino. In a matter of hours, he converted the $100 into the equivalent of $41,000 today. So from 100 bucks to 41000 that's not bad. In the mid-60s, Jarecki took up a post at the University of Heidelberg to study electrophoresis and forensic medicine. He won a highly prestigious peace prize, which was one of only 12 awarded worldwide. And he gained entry into an elite group of doctors and scientists. But he continued to keep records on tables, continually preparing for his next big move. Flush with cash, Jarecki purchased a luxury apartment near San Remo, a palatial Italian casino on the shores of the Mediterranean. Through studious observation, he identified a table that had a habit of landing on 33 far more than usual, and that's probably because of a result of the constant friction of the ball against the wheel. In 1968, he drove his white Rolls Royce to the gambling den and over three days proceeded to win $360,000. Eight months later, returned, winning $1.4 million in a single weekend and depleting the casino's on-hand cash at two different wheels 
twice in one night. Teetering on bankruptcy, the casino owner had no option but to issue Jarecki a 15-day ban for being too good. The night the ban was lifted, Jarecki returned and won another $717,000, so much money that the casino had to give him a promissory note. In May 1969, in the Italian Riviera, the 38-year-old medical professor placed a $715,000 bet on a single wheel spin of the wheel. He wasn't leaving it to chance. He'd spent thousands of hours devising an ingenious method of winning, and it netted him more than $8 million. Eventually, San Remo Casino gave up and replaced all 24 of its roulette wheels at a steep cost to the house. It was, they seeded, the only way to beat the best player that they had ever seen. Of course, today, most wheels have gone digital, run by algorithms, programmed to favour the house, so... Jarecki's method wouldn't work now, probably. Now, in 1973, Jarecki moved his family back to New Jersey, where he became a commodities broker. With the help of his billionaire brother, he multiplied his fortune 10 times over. In the early 90s, Jarecki relocated to Manila, where he remained until his death in 2018 at the age of 87. So in just a few years, by studying the tables, he won millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. So Dr. Richard Jarecki certainly died a winner. Now remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much, much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can do the ordinary. Anybody can be ordinary. Anyone can be normal. And if you're ordinary and you're normal, you'll always be as boring as batshit and you'll never know how amazing or exciting your life can be. So I hope you can join me next Tuesday when I will again broadcast across the world from our studios in Hollywood, California, and this is the place where technology meets entertainment. In the meanwhile, have a great week. Continue to be successful because the alternative to being successful really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.